Ms. Tony Moe. I don't think you'll need these. We'll see how we go. Well, if you are joining us for the first time today or it's been the first for a while, it's wonderful to have you with us. I do hope you enjoy your time uh, today. Uh, we are kind of halfway through this quite significant series in our church life together. It's significant because I'm praying and hoping that this series uh, will shape our church community for years ahead and some of the content that we're thinking about and our calling as a church community. We've been thinking about what it means for our whole church to see its chief responsibility under God to be making, maturing, growing what we might call disciple-making disciples of Jesus. And that is a bit of jargon if you're not familiar with it and we've been hopefully unpacking it so it doesn't sound as jargony. Uh, and I've been so encouraged by the conversations that I've been having over the last few weeks on Sundays and midweek. Uh, people engaging with this question Excited to think about the possibilities uh, under God that we might be thinking about in the years ahead. Uh, before we go any further into our question for today, I thought it'd be good just to do another recap where we've come from because this series kind of does hold together uh, as a collection. Uh, we began with a question really thinking about why, why make disciples of Jesus, why listen to his great commission, those words in the end of Matthew's gospel, why? And we, we looked at why this is such a significant series is because we saw that we make disciples, when we saw the parts of the scripture, we make disciples because God's goal for the whole world and for the whole of human history is to glorify his beloved son in the midst of the people that he has rescued and transformed we were reminded from scripture that God is, if it's the right word, in the business, in the business of calling his people from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. Uh, we've been challenged, and I've been challenged about how much we agonise over the eternal state of those who don't have Jesus. And what does it look like to do this with, with humility and not judgmentalism? Do our actions uh, and priorities reflect what we really believe in this area? We thought a few weeks ago about the question, what is a disciple? We saw that a disciple is a word that means L-plater, learner, apprentice. It's not just about head knowledge and intellectual content in some detached sense. It's actually about learning in the sense of giving one's life over to their master, being yoked to Jesus like an L-plater is to their tutor, worshipping, turning from worshipping of idols to the true and living God that's a, a disciple a disciple we saw is a, a forgiven sinner learning Christ in repentance and faith we're thinking about what it means for us to be a community of learners on our L plates and you know with parents who have kids on L plates teaching their teenagers to drive can sometimes be stressful especially when the L plate driver doesn't want to be taught I'm not speaking from any experience here but maybe on personal experience you know, they, you can have that feeling like you know better, better than everyone else or you're ready to get off your L plates or whatever. It's humiliating driving around with your L plates with your parents in the car, all that kind of thing. We're thinking a little bit, what would it be like for us as a church never to get off our L plates? That would be quite humbling, wouldn't it? Well, that's what we are. We're an L plate church until Jesus returns. We're not the experts. We don't graduate. And we're learning uh, is not always about depth of biblical knowledge in the sense of being able to answer everyone's questions about what verse something come from but a wisdom a wisdom to christian living 
I've been chatting with people over the last few weeks about why so many people can often refer, prefer to use the phrase Christian to describe themselves rather than disciple. Uh, often that's for good reason because for a range of views, the word disciple is often associated with like a cult leader or something like that. You know, disciples of this kind of person or that person it often implies blindly uh, following someone in a particular position of power. Sometimes disciple involves a little bit too much zeal in living out your faith. And so we sometimes prefer the, the language of Christian because, well, that's just so general and non-confronting. How do you feel about thinking about St Mark's as a community of L-platers, disciples, disciple-making disciples, apprentices? Uh, and last week we looked at how disciples are made. How does God make... And we, we saw that God is the one who makes disciples. We can't make disciples by paying people. We can't make disciples by arguing with people and winning debates. We can't make disciples by being nice to people. Only God can change hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit. And to do this spiritual transformation we saw last week, God has clearly given his people, that's us, his church, a responsibility to be his agents of making and growing disciples. So as those people whose God, whom God's spirit dwells in already, it makes sense that the people on earth who have God's spirit are the ones in which God uses to make other disciples. And so last week we saw it happened through the the ingredients of, for those who love alliteration, I don't love it, but I, I used it, how disciples make four Ps, prayerfully depending on the Spirit of God, proclaiming or sharing the Word of God, people as God's fellow workers and persevering step by step. That's how God promises to make disciples and this pattern is continued throughout history. Everyone here today who is a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, under God, humanly speaking, would have been made through those four ingredients. Someone would have shared, multiple people would have shared God's word to you, prayed for you, would have involved God's people persevering step by step. And it's how he continues to do it. We also saw the other pathway, uh, we call pathway alliteration, four E's for maturing and making a maturing disciples. How do we think about a journey someone goes on? I've kind of tried to put it up there as a graphic which we'll look at a little bit more on the weekend away, how this, this works. But you see that, you know, roughly speaking, this is a logical kind of pathway, not, a, not in terms of time. It, it, people move it in different ways, but there's a logic to it. Somebody engages with a Christian church or community. At some point, they hear the gospel with a call to believe and repent. That might happen in one night over a series, over a number of years. That's what we'd call evangelism. And then, it's, and then they move on and are established in their faith. They know what it means to pray, what it looks like to live a godly life, what does it mean to, to put away these things and to put on other things, as we were reading uh, in the first reading from Colossians. And then as, as they're established, the penny drops and they start to become equipped, not just to think about their own Christian walk, but other people, whether it's their children, their husband, their wife, their, their next-door neighbours, whatever it is, they become equipped. And you can see those two arrows. You, you, you're equipped, most people are equipped and they kind of go back and loop back on. And, and that's in, in, your, in your church community. You're equipped to help people engage, evangelise and established. But other people are sent. They might get sent to Bible college, sent on the mission field. Uh, like, like we've got Amy, Amy um, 
Amy Olson, who's down work, doing work on the, the university campus, so people get sent. So you see that engagement, evangelism, establish, equip, and kind of go back on itself. That's kind of a logical pathway we'll be exploring a little bit more. And it's fair to say in a church like ours, there'll be some points in that pathway where we're a bit stronger and over the years we've invested a lot of resources and in other parts of that pathway you might be feeling a little bit weaker actually. We spend a lot of time trying to establish people but not much time equipping people or engaging with our community or whatever it is like that. We'll be thinking about that over the time ahead. But what I'd like to do today uh, and for the next, this week and next few weeks as we've got a guest preacher coming, we're going to drill down a little bit on two more questions who and where of making disciples so today we're going to think about the who question who makes disciples and in one sense we've already answered that question it's quite straightforward God's people they're the people who make the disciples those in whom God's spirit dwells every Christian has been called by God to the responsibility that's the right word of making and maturing disciples of Jesus so what I'd like to do today and it's a little bit longer today so bear with me if you're not caffeinated up but bear with me, it's going to be a bit longer today. I'm going to tease it out a little bit uh, because I think we are prone to raise a bunch of questions when this gets thrown to us, saying that all Christians are called to be somehow connected to the responsibility of making and growing disciples of Jesus. Sometimes it feels legalistic or a little bit too narrow. I'd like us to explore that a little bit. I think most of us would be comfortable with the idea that all Christians are called to prayerfully depend on God. We know that Prayer is a normal part of the Christian life. Sometimes we feel like we don't do it enough, but we all sort of agree that it's something we should be involved in. But the idea that all Christians are called to speak bit is a little bit less clear. Uh, and you might be thinking, does that mean to be part of St Mark's, I'm expected to go out on the street corner or be on the, um, the Coles roster where I'll just chat to people as they walk into Coles about Jesus and talk to my work colleagues, sharing Bible verses with them, or quit my job and be, go to Bible college, whatever it is. Now, possibly some of those things might be what you do, but that, I want to say, first of all, you can be a disciple maker without doing any of those things. We're going to explore that a little bit. Other people might be thinking, hang on a second, there's this thing about gifts, isn't there? What about spiritual gifts? What if my gift is, you know, playing in the band or, or serving in morning tea or, or whatever it is, or working with a tech team or... Whatever it is, what about, what about if that, I don't feel that God has gifted me in the area of prayerfully proclaiming his word to others. We're going to touch on that as well. What I would like to do today is to consider big picture again the idea that all Christians are called to share God's word with others and how that is like the engine room, humanly speaking, of our response to God and participation in his work. And I would like us to think about what it looks like in practice a little bit and then consider some of the roadblocks that we might have in doing this. So first of all, big picture, Christian speech, what does the Bible teach about it? The privilege and the responsibility that God gives all Christians in regard to how we speak and, and the things that we share. And we're going to think about that and we're going to go right, right back to the beginning. This is probably the biggest flyover we've ever done in one of these things. Huge flyover of the Bible's teaching. God's people... Right back at the beginning, we're designed for loving relationships and the gift of speech is God's glue for loving relationships. There's a difference between the animal kingdom and humanity. Humanity uh, relates to God with speech, relates to one another with speech, names creation. As much as, you know, we, we love our pets, 
And I certainly have, we love our pets as a different kind of bond with that relationship because of the way that speech works and glue, glues relationships together. You move through the Bible, not very far, but sin ruins and frustrates our speech through, the sin, through our sins and pride and all those kind of things. Communication between us and God and us and each other is corrupted and frustrated. We don't have to look very far to, to know that we live in a world where we're very fluent in saying things that we regret, that might tear others down, puff ourselves up. And then through the Old Testament, you see these glimpses of restored speech. There's the Old Testament prophets through the Spirit-inspired prophets of God and their written word and the songs that are preserved for God's people. There's these glimpses of speech as it's meant to be. Uh, and, and that kind of speech kind of came on certain people when the Spirit of God descended on them. They would speak not their own words coming out of a corrupted heart, but they would speak God's words these kind of scattered individuals in the Old Testament were known as the prophets. But it wasn't just the prophets uh, who spoke these things. And they weren't, the, the prophets weren't just the ones who spoke of the future. Some of us go, oh, that prophet who's speaking of the future. The prophet would be the one who would speak by the Spirit, empowered word of God on behalf of God, often to the immediate situation. And it wasn't just the scattered prophets who would speak the word of God. They would often preserve, the, the prophet's words were reserved in the pages and would often take the form of songs. So the Psalms, the book of Psalms, was something that God's ancient people would sing and that enabled their speech to be God's word, the redeemed word, to proclaim the truth of God's word amongst God's people. Now, that's a huge sort of, I know that's a kind of massive overview here, but in the Old Testament, the Spirit-inspired speaking or proclaiming of God's truth was largely limited to the prophets when, or when the people of God would gather and sing the words of the prophets, right? You jump forward to the New Testament and we see that God's spirit is poured out on all believers, all people. Things certainly change after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. At the beginning of Acts, he tells his followers to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this is God's gift to enable God's people to be the witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And key to this gift is not just convicting our hearts, but it can allow us to speak the truth. So unlike in the Old Testament times when God's spirit would descend on a select group of people, God's spirit was given to everybody who trusts in Jesus. So on the day of Pentecost, when the crowds are trying to understand what's going on and the Spirit of God descends on this first church, the Apostle Peter, he gets up and stands up and he quotes the prophet Joel who says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I'll even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. I'll display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you notice about that promise that is being there fulfilled at that day of Pentecost, it's speaking the word of God, the truth of God, is no longer something that is just 
limited to a subgroup of God's people, the official people. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all God's people. So all God's people are prophets in that sense. All God's people now have the privilege of speaking words of prophecy. Now that's not just about stuff about the future. It is because we know Jesus returns. So in a sense that's the prophecy. But it's the truth about the world that we live in right now. And, the, and the where history is heading. You know how we began with talking about we make disciples because God's plan for the whole of human history is to redeem a people around his son. To be able to actually declare that and believe it is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's prophecy. And the result as that's declared, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord because they've heard these words will be saved. So you see the logic there? God's spirit on all God's people to empower God's people to speak God's word makes every Christian a prophet. Makes every Christian someone God can use to bring people to salvation. I'd like to look at just a couple more examples so that we feel like, okay, we've wrestled with this question of God's people speaking. So Acts chapter 8 uh, verses one to four, we read this: on the great day, on that great, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Did you notice the click? The book of Acts clearly records in verse 1 that everyone except the apostles were scattered. And then in verse 4 it says those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the people who were doing the preaching in verse 4 is everyone other than the apostles. The ones that we might be tempted to think, well, they're the ones entrusted to do the preaching and the teaching. There's another example in Acts, the person of Philip. In chapter 6 of Acts, there's this episode where the apostles realise they're unable to devote themselves fully to the preaching and the sharing of God's word, the good news of Jesus, and also at the same time attend to the physical needs of those they come in contact with, particularly providing for uh, food for widows. And so what the apostles did was they appointed a group of people to take responsibility for providing food to the widows to free the apostles up for prayer, for preaching and teaching. Now, one of the people who was, fr- who was entrusted with the responsibility of the kind of practical care, the food and provision for widows, was Philip. And you read that in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Now, in isolation, this little episode might suggest, okay, well, there are those who preach and teach and there are those who bake and prepare food and, and or those who do something else and, and so, so on. And that's clearly often the way that churches are set up. We actually have different gifts and do different things. But we could read this passage and think that whether or not Christians have a responsibility to share the word of God is whether or not they have a gift or they've been specifically called like the apostles were. Yet, later in Acts, in Acts chapter 8... The non-apostles, they've been scattered. And we see Philip, who was one of the food people, designated food people, he's out and about preaching. And no comment is made about whether or not Philip's gift or calling was in that area. Philip proclaimed Christ 
after being persecuted, it just seems like it's sort of assumed. A little later, we see Philip helping the Ethiopian eunuch understand the significance of the prophecy in Isaiah 53. It's written about Jesus. And the Ethiopian eunuch responds there and then and gives his life to Jesus, baptised. Throughout Paul's letters, we see the exhortation that Christians are given to assume to be speaking and sharing the word of Christ with others. Uh, a number of years ago, I was asked to, to speak on a weekend away at a church that I used to attend, but I wasn't attending. And the, the brief they gave me said, oh, look, we'd like you to speak on 1 Thessalonians and can you just be, give us a lot of application. We're struggling with application in our sermons and things. And I said, okay, I'll, go, I'll try to work on the application. And so I was, each passage I was breaking down, every passage, so many passages in 1 Thessalonians kept the, the application that Paul kept giving was he said you'd say all this stuff about the, the day of the Lord or holiness all this kind of stuff and then it, it would you'd go therefore encourage each other with these words that was Paul's application right it wasn't go and get your diary out or give money to this or that it was encourage each other with these words there was an ex, there was an understanding you're going to be a speaking church you're going to be built up as you speak these words to one another, reinforce these truths. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, which we looked at last year, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, there's sections often known as the passages about the diversity of gifts in the church. But it's when you look at the carefully, you can kind of see that God gives these different gifts in the church, not as an end in itself, but to build unity, to build the body of Christ up. And for the body of Christ to be built up is not just the body of Christ feeling good about itself, happy, fulfilled, useful. That's not what it means. Like sometimes we say, oh, if you go build that person up, just encourage them just so they feel valued and valued. That's not what it means for the body of Christ to be built up in that kind of psychological sense of being built up, like, uh, like in terms of uh, your morale. And it could involve that. But to be built up is very clearly to be built up into Christ, Christ's likeness. And that happens as we speak the truth in love. So the gift that God gives people, God's people, is not for their own ends, for their use of their gift, but for the purpose of strengthening the unity of the church to facilitate and encourage the speaking of the truth in love. And we saw that in that first reading, that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you speak, you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And the early church, time and time again, are exhorted to prioritise lovingly, truthfully, speaking the word of Christ, knowing that under God, by his spirit, the church grows into its maturity, not by being silent, but by speaking truth. The final point of our flyover is that book, part of the book of Revelation, which we've already looked at a couple of times, where everything is heading. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their heads, in their hands, not their heads, their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With the gift of God's Spirit, all Christians have the joy, 
the privilege, the responsibility, the opportunity to proclaim, to sing, to shout about what God has done, not just for now, but for eternity. Now, speaking God's word is part of our DNA, not just for a special subgroup of Christians, but all of us. So what does it look like then in practice, right? What does it look like in practice? And there are examples of what it doesn't look like. So you can read in the letters of like Titus that certain people are commanded not to speak, so false teachers due to the damage that can be done, the church through self-serving speech, and we can get very good at that, speech that doesn't build up, doesn't, uh, it's gossip, it tears the church apart, elevating certain individuals. But the speech that we're called to is a kind of speech which is other person-centred, it points people to the promises of God in Christ Jesus, it's truthful to the scriptures, It seeks to help people understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, not just in the moment but also in the long term. This speech that we are called to isn't about intimidating people with your Bible knowledge or showing off that you've read this amazing theologian or quoting the Bible uh, every time you open your mouth. It's a speech that is to be done in humility and gentleness not a bad place to start to open your Bible because that often points away from yourself but often we can hide behind the illusion that we're just speaking the words of the Bible and it's actually your own agenda using the Bible New Testament Christians didn't have their own Bibles they were taught it regularly they memorized parts of it you know when a friend or you know that you grew up with they might spend a bit of time overseas and they come back with an accent whether it's UK or America It's because they've been immersed in a culture where they speak differently and they can't help speaking like those people from the other country. When we immerse ourselves in God's word, I'm not just sort of saying Christian jargon, but God's promises, that is grace, forgiveness, hope, holiness. When we immerse ourselves in God's promises and treasure it more each day, we'll actually struggle not to speak from the perspective, the accent that comes from the truth of God's word. Again, it will look different for different people in different contexts. But here's the thing. God has put us in different contexts. But sometimes I think we can get confused with different contexts with different seasons. So we'll say, well, I'm in a season where I don't speak God's word because I'm doing dot, dot, dot. I think that's different. Throughout the New Testament... The message is the exact opposite. For as long as you have relationships with other living, breathing human beings, God has given you the privilege and responsibility of sharing the truth of Christ with others, whether that's with your child or the parents that you chat with when you're on the creche roster or your wife or your husband, your work colleagues, your parents, your Bible study, whatever it is. There is no relationship that exists in the world that is not better off with the word of Christ being at the centre of that relationship. There is no relationship that exists in the world that is not better off with the word of Christ being at the centre of that relationship. Now, for some of us, nearly all our disciple-making might happen in the household. 
as we speak to our children and help them to understand that they're even more loved by God than by their parents. That their identity and worth is found in Christ's love for them. For others, it might happen at the bedside of a seriously ill family member as they hear and are strengthened spiritually by God's love for them and the certainty of their heavenly home. For others, it could be opportunities that present in our relationships, whether at the gym, old school friends, whatever it is. No relationship that you have, Christian or not, will be better off by censoring and cancelling the good news of Jesus. Now, what it looks like to bring Jesus into a particular context will look different based on different relationships and the context. For some people, burnt by church, anything that resembles Bible bashing might be an immediate turn-off. For some relationships, the truth of what Jesus has done and the promises for those who trust in him need to be spoken with a certain sensitivity and winsomeness into the life of someone we love over months and weeks and conversations. But I think if we're honest, we can hide sometimes behind our fear of being Bible bashers and saying nothing of substance at all. And we can lose confidence in the promises of God. Now, in this church, I am so encouraged to see this happening in so many different ways. There have been those who have had to say a difficult word to someone else out of love for them as a Christian brother and sister and that Christian brother has come to appreciate that boldness. There are kids, there are parents who are talking to their kids about their big questions as they walk to school or drive them to school or put them to bed. There are those in nursing homes who are clinging on to their favourite hymns or Bible verses are witnessing to the non-Christian staff as they speak around them there are people who front up week after week to teach kids in our local schools about the truth of jesus despite often battling with difficult behavior Uh, there are people who i won't embarrass him who post a bible verse every day on our st mark's community page facebook page for our encouragement Speaking God's word and sharing God's word is happening in so many different ways, yet I suspect many of us will still find it a difficult job to do or something difficult to think about or it might, you hear a talk like this and you feel like it's inspiring you to feel guilty. I want to spend just the last few moments thinking about why we might struggle to share God's word with others. I think there are three common reasons we don't. First is we lack motivation, second we lack confidence and third we lack courage, we fear how people will take us and I think all three are related. Lack of motivation, confidence and courage is often as a result of habits that can grow when we personally neglect to immerse ourselves in God's word in the context of our whole lives. That is, we compartmentalise the place that God's word and speaking about God's word should have in our life. So we might go to church on Sunday if we can, we hear the sermon or we catch up if we can, we go home, we do a second load of washing, do the gardening, go to work, whatever it is. We get into the habit 
of treating the sphere where we hear, think and speak about God's word as a subset of our week, a very limited subset. And even perhaps in our home groups, we can get into the habit where we talk about the Bible when the first question the study is opened up and we stop when the last prayer is done, that then we talk about anything but God's word because of a culture of compartmentalisation that can dry up motivation and confidence and courage very quickly. One of the reasons we gather each week, and it's so important for Christians to do this and why um, just listen to podcasts and stuff like that is not a bad second option, but gathering is so important is because we have the opportunity to encourage others, even with our body language, <laughs> over morning tea and being here as we hear and as we hear from God's word each week. One of the reasons we have morning tea each week is not because we feel like people are going to go home and starve, you know. We're not, in some parts of the world, we, you do it as a gesture of kindness for people who can't afford a meal, but we don't do that here for the most part, nor are we worried about people's diets or anything like that. We know that food helps people and relationships flourish and puts people at ease because we want people to spend time with one another, to speak into each other's lives. Not talking about quoting Bible verses, but showing genuine concern. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter the weekend away, coming up. There's these wonderful words we looked at last week. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See that the church is described as a royal priesthood, not like a sort of not like there's a special subgroup called to be God's mouthpieces. That we declare God's praises for what He has done. Truth speakers, hope preachers, those of us who know Jesus are called to share our deepest love. Now, let's get practical here. And I, th- I want to really give one practical exercise for us to think about before we finish. What happens when that love is starting to dry up, right? If you're, if you're, again, if you're here today and you feel like you've heard all this before and you've tried and you've been burnt in the past and you feel like, well, what's going on? Is there no hope for me? I've, you know, you, you might be feeling that no motivation, no confidence, no courage, you know, that tension there. I want to speak to the person today who's feeling spiritually dry and I want to offer for want of a better word, pastoral advice, right? <laughs> uh, it's not really my own advice, I think, but the advice of Scripture. But if you want to, if you're someone who feels spiritually dry at the moment and you don't want to feel spiritually dry, I would love to offer some practical advice that I am confident under God will help address that. It'll only work, God can do whatever he wants, but humanly speaking, it'll only work if you actually don't want to feel spiritually dry and you'd like to change that. It's a little exercise, so very practical. First of all, carve out some time today or tomorrow. So carve out some time. So you might need to diarise it, put things on hold, go somewhere by yourself uh, with a Bible and start with praying and praying slow, asking that God will help you to be spiritually nourished and fed by his word that his spirit will be at work in you. Pray that God will remind you of how valuable you are 
the purpose he has for you to bring honour and glory to him. And here's the trick. Don't stop praying until you actually feel you're speaking to God. Take as long as it takes. Sometimes we go, tick that box, I prayed, next thing. Don't move on. And, and you know that feeling. When you're cognizant of it, actually, I'm actually speaking to the living God here. Second, open God's word. Don't spend too long about what passage you can look at. Maybe start with 1 Peter, because we're going to be doing that at the weekend away. And start by reading it really slowly, word or verse at a time, but only read as much as you need to read until you're aware that you're not just reading words off a page, but that God is speaking to you, challenging you, encouraging you. And at that point, I want you to pause and reflect. Use your brain. Don't switch off your brain. Reflect on what God is teaching you from his word. Do you remember you've stopped at that point? Take as long as you need. And then fourthly, when you've thought that through and reflected on that, pray that God will help you to believe this truth and God will give you the opportunity to share with just one person what God taught you today. And take again, as long as you need, you don't need to rush it. Very simple. See, making disciples is as simple as sharing with someone else what God is teaching you from his word in this moment. It comes from a confidence that God's word really is spirit-inspired, it's living and active, and it will change lives. Uh, in, a, in the church I was previously at, I had the privilege of having a, a lady named Marilyn who was in our congregation, who was a resident of the local nursing home, and she was just someone who'd, who'd lived an amazing life uh, 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 in ministry in a whole bunch of different ways. But in her older age, she couldn't speak anymore. Uh, and she invited me, uh, she scribbled down, she invited me to come read the Bible with her at the nursing home. And at first I thought, you know, I sometimes get asked to do that in, in my role and I thought, okay, I'm happy to do that. But I discovered she, she wanted me to read the Bible with her, not because I was somebody special, but because she couldn't speak and she wanted her non-believing cleaner, Filipino cleaner whose English was a second language, she had such a power, uh, such a belief in the power of God's word and her inability to actually verbalise those things. And sometimes we do that, don't we? She says, can you, and she knew that maybe because I'm a minister, I only work on Sundays, right? <laughs> I can come midweek anytime. So she called me, can you, can you read? She's scribbling, read it out. So I'm reading it. That's somebody who is so believing that the power of God's word will change lives. And in my own experience, often those who are finding God distant or not speaking to them or challenging them or growing them, often one of three things is going. There's often trauma and there's a whole range of things that can be, can be life can throw massive curveballs. But in the normal rhythms of life, often one of three things are going on. They've either stopped relying on God and reaching out to him in prayer 
stop believing that God's word is actually God's word and meditating on it. And interestingly, stop speaking to others about God. You come back into a shell. When God's people go out on the front lines, God equips them and strengthens them and reminds them that he is with them, whether it's in the household, whether it's at church, and neighbours and family. Who makes disciples? Every Christian who is learning Christ by the power of God's spirit is equipped to share the word of God, the word of Christ with others. Let's pray. Now, Father, we give you thanks for your word and we thank you for the word uh, that has transformed our hearts, the word of the gospel, the gospel of your son. Each of us today who follow him, trust in him, are people who your spirit has been at work in our lives through many people who have shared your word with us. We ask you'll help us to be a community where this word dwells in us richly. We're not ashamed to speak this truth of others to others, to build each other up as we speak the truth in love. We ask that you'll help us to do this more and more.